0: So when, uh, <clears throat> when I was a kid, there was a, a news anchor by the name of Walter C- Cronkite, and uh, he earned the title of being the most trusted man in America. Uh, he, he was known for giving unbiased, factual accounts of the news. People knew if he reported it, you could trust it. Things are sure different today, aren't they? A recent uh, poll, the majority of Americans said they no longer trust what's said in the news. And in fact, the prevailing attitude in America is people don't know what they can trust anymore. So the sermon by request uh, came from two different people this, uh, this week again. Uh, one of them said they wanted to hear a sermon about, quote, why you can believe that the whole Bible is true. And uh, the second one said they wanted a sermon on, quote, proof of the Bible through archaeological finds, etc., especially to share with non believers. So we're gonna look at a couple of different passages uh, this morning, but we're just gonna start with some words from Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. They come from Matthew chapter five, starting at verse seventeen. And they say this Jesus says. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to worship together this morning. We thank you for um, just the, the uh, great work that you are doing in people's hearts and lives. God, we believe you're working and active in hot springs and wanting to do great things. And God, we base these things upon what you've revealed to us in your Word. And so, as we look at that this morning, we pray that you would speak to us, challenge us, encourage us, strengthen us where you will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I want to start uh, this, uh, this morning by addressing that question of using the, the following material, the stuff I'm going to share, uh, with those uh, in uh, with discussions with non believers. And first of all, I think it's uh, great if you're able to get into a serious, open-minded discussion about the Bible with someone who doesn't believe. I mean, if they're asking uh, questions and sincerely interested in, in seeking answers, well, then I guarantee that you're going to walk away uh, today with some stuff that you'll be able to to use uh, with them. Um, however, I also have to say it's been my experience that most people who are skeptical or worse, antagonistic to the Bible, not really get into discussions seeking. They're not looking uh, for anything. In fact, they're generally looking for an opportunity to just bash or ridicule the Bible or tell you why they don't want to follow it or believe it. And um, they would not be convinced, uh, no matter what argument you would put forth for them, no matter what reasons you would give. And, and uh, so I, I just caution you to, to, to be careful what discussions you get into because there's really no uh, uh, benefit to simply getting into an argument with, with someone over this. Another aspect to uh, keep in mind is that there is no single or even accumulative argument that can irrefutably prove the divine origin and inspiration of the Bible. I mean, even if you were um, uh, uh, talking with a non-believer who was sincerely seeking, you would not be able to give them uh, a foolproof argument to show them that the Bible is true and accurate revelation of God uh, uh, over and above as opposed to any other type of uh, religious or sacred writings in the world. See, in the final analysis... What is true for the rest of our spiritual life is also true in terms of our view and understanding and approach to the Bible, and that is we walk by faith, not by sight. Sight being equivalent to verifiable, undeniable, absolute proof. When speaking of God and, and uh, our spiritual life, the author of Hebrews put it this way, and without faith... It is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You know, there, there are many different uh, logical, reasonable, and convincing arguments for the reality of the existence of God and of the God of the Bible in particular. But none of those arguments provide what a person would call conclusive proof. Uh, and so the bottom line is a person must accept God by faith. And that also means that he or she must accept the things of God, such as his word, by faith as, as well. And it's for that reason that it is nearly impossible to try to convince someone who is not a believer that the Bible is really the word of God. They they have no faith. They have no position to move in to accept that however just because God in his word must be accepted by faith that doesn't mean there aren't some strong and profound arguments in favor of him and his word I mean there are some in the world who claim that Christianity and belief in the Bible is nothing more than an unintelligent unthinking leap of blind faith maybe you've heard that before And that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, the same God who said that we must come to him in faith also said, come now and let us reason together. To reason about something means that there are logical, rational, reasonable, sound judgments and conclusions that can be reached through investigation and intelligence. I mean, that's that's what it means to reason together. And the subject of that verse there in, in, in Isaiah is about the forgiveness of our sins. So that presupposes the realities that there is a God who has set a moral standard and we have broken it and therefore are in need of forgiveness. And it also takes for granted that this God has then revealed himself and his standard, made it known to us, and revealed that path of salvation for us, which naturally leads us back to his Word, the Bible. That's how God has revealed it. So let's spend a few minutes here reasoning together about God's Word. Are there rational, believable, compelling arguments for accepting the Bible as true? Well, I'm glad you asked because there are. There's, there's basically only three positions a person can take towards the Bible, Right? Three, three positions, that's really all there is uh, when you're taking, talking about the trustworthiness or the reliability of the Bible. And the first position is that the whole thing is bunk. The whole thing is, is not trustworthy, it's all faults. Um, And and there are those who claim that the Bible is nothing more than the religious musings of of various men. It's purely human in origin. It contains nothing more than man's thoughts about God, but presented in such a way as to pretend that they're from God. And and that would mean um, that it's all built uh, on a falsehood, a claim to be from God when in fact it's not. And if this were the case, if this was true, then that means Christianity itself is built on a false foundation. And therefore, anybody who would believe it is, is either uh, incredibly naive or a fool or, or maybe just completely uh, deluded because no thinking or honest person would build their faith upon that which is known to be false. So that's, that's the first position that could be taken. The second possible position is the view that the Bible is a mixture of both true and false. Some of it is factual, and well, some of it is, is in error. You know, there's mistakes. Part of it can be relied upon, but part of it is also uh, false, which means, of course, that the Bible is neither completely trustworthy nor completely fabricated. It's parts of both. And, of course, uh, this particular view or within this uh, view, there can be a wide variety of positions, right? Some people might say, well, that the Bible is mostly true, like, you know, 95, 98% or whatever. It's, it's mostly true. But, you know, there's just some errors. There's some uh, falsehood in there. Or maybe others would say, oh, well, it's less percentage than that, maybe 50-50 or whatever percentage. Or you have even the the farther end of the spectrum and those who would say it's mostly false but there's kernels of truth in it. There's grains of truth in it here and there or, or they would say that um, uh, it, it's kind of like Aesop's fables, right? Uh, that, that the whole thing is made up. They're all made up stories but, but the, the lessons that they're, the moral and ethical lessons they're trying to teach, those, those are real or, or those are true. The main problem with this particular view, of course, is that you're left with the question of who gets to decide what is false and what is true. And, and with that, you've only got two options, right? E- either you or someone else has to make that decision. That, that's, that's all the options you have. So, uh, for instance, uh, y- y- you can make it yourself. Uh, this is, this is uh, what Thomas Jefferson decided to do uh, for himself. Uh, You can go to the Smithsonian uh, uh, Museum and you can see the Bible that he uh, doctored up to his satisfaction. He liked the person and, and the moral teachings of Jesus, but he eliminated everything that he believed did not stand, quote, the test of reason. If it didn't, didn't sound reasonable to him, then he eliminated that. And so, of course, uh, for him, that meant getting rid of all the miracles uh, 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 in the Bible, and, uh, including uh, the miracle of the resurrection. And he cut out all the parts of the Bible that he agreed with and, and then glued them to blank pages, pieces of paper and, and, and then made his own Bible uh, out of it that way. So you could do that. You could be the one who decides what you will or what you won't believe, or you could let someone else make those decisions for you. There's an organization out there called the Jesus Seminar. Uh, And this is a group of, of liberal scholars and theologians and interested lay people who got together with the stated purpose of discovering the true historical Jesus. And so they divided the gospel accounts Uh, into uh, the sayings of Jesus and the deeds of Jesus and they worked on each uh, separately and and, uh, what they did was they gave every member uh, of this council four colored beads for voting and so a red bead would mean, oh, yeah, absolutely, this, this is from Jesus. A pink bead would say, well, you know, it sounds like Jesus is probably him, uh, but, you know, there's some uncertainty there. A gray bead would be, uh, I, this, this is probably not, uh, I don't think this could be Jesus. I mean, there's a slight possibility it could be, but most likely not. And a black bead means, oh, absolutely not, no, this, this really couldn't be Jesus. And then they went through and voted. And, and, and uh, of course, they you know claim they study scholarly papers or whatever they did on this. But the reality is, the bottom line was the voting was done based on their feelings and their opinions. And, and when they got done, only eighteen percent of what Jesus said and sixteen percent of what he did remained. Everything else quite literally, got blackballed. And the point is, if you accept a partially true and a partially false approach to the Bible, what that ultimately means is that some man, either yourself or, or someone else, has to stand in judgment over the Bible, deciding what to believe and what not to believe, what is real and what's not real. So the third position a person can take is that the Bible is fully and completely trustworthy in all of its parts. And this is the position that the Bible claims for itself. 2 Timothy 3.16 is the classic scripture on this. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All scripture. That means every part of it, from from creation to the new heavens and the new earth and everything in between, all Scripture. Uh, This uh, is what Jesus himself affirmed. That's the position he took. The verses that we read at, at the beginning of the service here, right? It said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all Is accomplished. So, so the position of Jesus is that it is all. It's completely trustworthy. And even the Old Testament uh, affirms this same. Position. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, and the entire theme of that psalm is the trustworthiness, the sufficiency, the reliability of the Word of God. And so it's repeated over and over and over again in there. One example, verse 160 says, The sum of your Word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. The sum of means all of it, everything put together, the the, the entire total, nothing is excluded. It is all, it says, truth. But maybe you say, you know, well, you know, other religious books, they claim to be the truth as well. You know, the Quran, the Hindu Vedas, the Buddhist Sutra, the Book of Mormon, whatever, right? Is there any evidence to support the Bible's claim versus any of these others? And, and, and the Bible is so old, right? I mean, I mean, couldn't errors have crept in over time? And, and, and so now, uh, you know, these guys were making copies of it by hand and, and mistakes could happen. So is there any evidence to say that what we have in the Bible today is really accurate and reliable to what was, was originally written? Well, I'm glad you asked because there is. Okay? Let's start with the reliability question. Is is what we read today an accurate representation of what was originally written? Because as you well know, those original uh, documents and texts, they're, they're lost to antiquity. And so what we have is copies that have been made down through the ages. Uh, can we say that it's... it's um, Accurate, and, and that's where the study, the science of, of textual uh, criticism comes in. And, and here's an example of how that works. And I didn't come up with this example. I, I read it, saw it somewhere, and then I don't remember where, so I can't give the guy credit. But, but we'll just take some texting a, as an example here. Suppose that I have a son who sends me a text that says, Dad... I just saw an ad on Facebook where I can invest in some company and make truckloads of money. Will you send me $2,000? And in a fit of unbridled foolishness, I send back a text that says, Sure, son. Meet me at Starbucks in D.C. by the shoplift at 2 p.m. on Thursday. After I send the message, I realize my... Fumbling thumbs hit DC instead of RC for Rapid City, and my autocorrect changed Shopco into Shoplift. Which literally happened, by the way. Just in case you, my, my wife sent me a text one time that said she was stopping to visit somebody at the hospital and then going out to Shoplift. <laughs> So after realizing the mistakes I made, I, I try again, right? And so I send another text. Sure, sin, meet me at the Starving in R.C. by the Shopko at, at p.m. on Thursday. All right, so, okay, now my autocrat got me again. I got Starving instead of Starbucks and made two other mistakes. So I try again. Sure, son, beat me at Starbucks in R.C. by the Shopco at 2 p.m. on Thursday. You know, now, now I'm really getting frustrated, right? I'm going to try one more time. We get the fourth one up. Uh, and surf, son. Meet me at Starbucks in R.C. by the shop go at 2 p.m. on Thursday. Okay, now I'm just giving up, right? Well, here's the thing. What do you think my son's going to do? Where do you think he's going to be? At what time? Starbucks. He's going to be at Starbucks at 2 o'clock on Thursday, by the Shopco in Rapid City. How did he get there? I made a mistake in every single text. But by comparing the four and putting them together, right, he could get the accurate message. He could see, okay. This word appeared three out of four times, so the fourth one's probably a mistake. You know, this type of thing. He, he, he could put it together. That's how textual studies work. If you have enough manuscripts, even though there might be some mistakes in some of the copies, you can weed those out and get down to the correct message. And, and in, of course, in terms of history, now we're talking historical documents, right, the the. the the closer your copy is to when the original was written, the, the higher probability of, of accuracy, right? And so uh, when you find it is good. So how many copies are needed in order for historians and archaeologists to say, yes, we have an accurate copy of what was originally w- written? Well, so far... Uh, historians have found or or pieced together 10 complete copies uh, and, and about 251 fragments of, of the Gaelic Wars by Julius Caesar. Okay, He wrote this book, The Gaelic Wars, uh, account of the wars there around 52 B.C. is when he wrote that. And the earliest manuscript that they have available for that came from the 9th century. So so about 900, 950 years From the original is when the the first copy had done it. But with 10, they say that is sufficient uh, to be confident that you are coming away with an accurate message. That's that's sufficient uh, to substantiate accuracy. I mean, think of that text. If you had 10 copies of that text, you would really be able to to, to know what was exactly right, especially when you had multiple copies that didn't have any errors, so they were exactly the same, okay? So 10 copies uh, gives you a high degree of confidence. So how does the Bible stack up to that? Well... For the Greek New Testament, which was written between 50 and 100 A.D., uh, basically, uh, we have 5,795 complete manuscripts with over 24,000 fragments, with the earliest fragment dating to 120 uh, A.D., which means just a couple of decades after the original writing. And, and the Jews, they were even more meticulous in keeping accurate copies of the Old Testament. You see, the bottom line is we can say with absolute confidence that the Bible we read today is accurate and reliable. And beyond that, archaeology has over and over again proven the truthfulness of of the Bible. I mean, just, just a couple of a quick examples here. In Isaiah chapter 20, uh, the prophet talks about uh, the king of Assyria named Sargon who captured uh, Ashdod, a city, a city of the Philistines, right? Well, for years, critics of the Bible would point to that and say, oh, well, see, there's a mistake in the Bible because we don't have any uh, records of a Syrian king named Sargon uh, uh, until. They unearthed the palace of Sargon in in Iraq and found it. And interestingly enough, in the palace records of Sargon, it records that exact same event that was in Isaiah. Collaboration, right? Do you know for many years there was no evidence for Pontius Pilate? No Roman records for him. No evidence for him other than the gospel accounts. So, of course, people would point to the Bible and say, well, obviously the Bible made a mistake. I mean, you know, we would have Roman records, wouldn't we? And, and uh, by the way, when people say we would have Roman records and stuff like this of people like this or any of these ancient records, um, do you know how much uh, of the ancient records have survived to this day and that they found? Uh, the, and this isn't biblical. This is just historians, archaeologists. They figure somewhere between 1% and 2%. So with 98% of the records missing, It's not a wonder that some people haven't heard of certain names. Well, you know, Pilate, he must, maybe they just made that up or the Bible made a mistake or they were just putting a guy in there and stuff. And so it was just often pointed to a mistake in the Bible until 1961 when by Caesarea they found what they now call the Pilate Stone, this limestone block with a partially legible inscription still in it that mentioned Pontius Pilate, prefect of the province of of Judea oh imagine that he was a real guy uh, since then they have also found some other fragments of Roman histories that have named him in a couple other uh, other places so there's even more confirmation and, and the point is over and over again and i I could just list example after example of this um, that has happened it has confirmed archaeology has confirmed interesting never once has archaeo- archaeology dug up something that disproved or contradicted any portion or teaching of the Bible. They just keep finding more and more stuff that authenticates it. So yes, we can trust the Bible is true and accurate. But just because it's true and accurate, does that mean it's from God? I mean, maybe it's like Homer's Iliad or, or some of these other ancient religious writings, right? What is there in the Bible that would set it apart? Is there any evidence to indicate that it's from God rather just from man? Well, I'm glad you asked because there is. I mean, you can start with, with just the amazing continuity of the Bible. I mean, imagine what would happen if you just took three people, three people all from the same time period, you know, this year you took three people uh, from the United States. So they're from the same basic culture and you stuck them in. A house, but put them in three different rooms. And you told them, "Okay, I want you to write a comprehensive religious uh, uh, volume, including the history of God's works, teaching and doctrines, as well as some poetry and wisdom literature. And oh, by the way, let's throw in some end times and ap- apocalyptic thoughts uh, uh, there towards the end." The end. And even if you gave those three guys their specific uh, areas to work on, you know, okay, you do like, you know, the old ancient stuff, and you do uh, gospel accounts, and you do, you know, teachings and stuff, even if you gave them, th- what do you think you would end up with? I mean, it would be a, a, a thing full of contradictions and, and chaotic information because they're all putting down their own thoughts. But you have the exact opposite in the Bible, and its composition was far more diverse than getting three guys together in in, in a house. It was written by 40 different authors over the span of about 1,500 years on three different continents. But instead of chaos and contradictions, you find harmony and agreement. There's a single theme That runs through the entire Bible, which is that God created us, loves us, wants to have a relationship with us, and that he desires that we would come to know and trust him. And the chances of that harmony coming through that type of diversity is not even in the realm of probability apart from the work of God. These are not man's ideas about religion being written down, but God's revelation of himself. And that's why we would read like in Second Peter, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God the reason the Bible fits together neatly despite all this diversity uh, of human writers is because ultimately God is the author. God was the one who was working through men. And that kept that singular flow. But it's not just the continuity of the Bible that would speak to its divine origin. Uh, we, We also have evidence because of the prophecies. And this is something you don't find in any other religious writings and this type of thing. The prophecies of God are incredible evidence. The Bible has dozens and upon dozens of prophecies that were made throughout it and and sometimes hundreds of years prior to the event. And uh, yes, there's still some prophecies waiting to be fulfilled, but of all the prophecies that have been fulfilled, which is many, many, many of them, hundreds of them, there's 100% accuracy in, in those things. And, and these are not your horoscope kind of prophecies, you know. Uh, they're so vague and general that just about anything could fit and be Oh, yeah, that's the way it is, you know. Uh, the, 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 the prophecies of the Bible oftentimes give very specific details. For example... Isaiah predicted uh, the coming military defeat and, and then captivity of Israel because of her disobedience. And, and he gave that prophecy about 80 years before it happened. Jeremiah uh, pr- predicted that this captivity would last 70 years. So the end of it was 150 years away. But in Isaiah chapter 45, he prophesies about the end of that captivity and he even names the name of the king who's going to give them freedom. Cyrus, 150 years in advance, he's naming names. Think about that. I mean, that would be like a guy going up to, uh, you know, a preacher walking up to Washington, D.C. today and saying, oh, by the way, uh, you know, about about the year 2100, we're gonna, America's going to be taken over by North Korea and we're going to be under North Korean captivity for 70 years, but at the end of 70 years, China is going to rise up and Zing Dong Ding or whatever Chinese name, I mean, you, you get this the, the, the specific name, right? He is going to lead uh, uh, conquering over North Korea and, and then allow the people of America to turn uh, come back to freedom, and it happened exactly like that. That's something that only God can do. Just one other quick example: the prophet Ezekiel predicted that multiple nations would come against Tyre, the capital city of the Phoenicians, right? and that the city would be completely destroyed, never to be inhabited again, that it would be torn down and, uh, and, and the stones and timbers and even the soil from the city would be cast into the seas and become a place where fishermen dry their nets. Okay? Well, about 13 years after that prophecy was made, Babylon came uh, against Tyre and laid siege against it but but, uh, the the city was built right on the seacoast and the Phoenicians were a seagoing people so during the siege they snuck out at night in their ships and escaped to a nearby island so then when Babylon uh, breached and broke into the city they found this abandoned city and in a rage they just destroyed the whole place knocked all the stones out and left left a big pile of rubble there well that didn't bother the residents of Tyre too much they were safe on their island they said "Ah, we'll just build our city out here And they'll start living out there. Well, a few hundred years later, this guy named Alexander the Great comes by. And he and his army is camped by the rubble of the original city of Tyre. And he sends out a a request to the king uh, at at the island city and says, hey, I'm on my way down to Egypt. I could use some supplies and and some help. Would you help me? And the king of Tyre basically said, not going to do that. Hey, we feel confident out here. Well, this enraged Alexander the Great. So he commanded his army to gather up all the rubble, the timber, the stones, even the soil, throw it all into the sea to make a pathway out to the island, a causeway, a sea dram, completely cleared that, what used to be the city, it's all in the sea, made it out to the island, destroyed them, neither place is inhabited anymore. But fishermen, even to this day, use it to dry their nets. It's amazing, isn't it? On top of those examples, you have all the prophecies of Jesus Christ, which were fulfilled in exact detail. Hundreds of prophecies by him. there's there's a guy named Dr. Peter Stoner, a mathematician who just was trying to figure out the probability of this. And so he just took eight. Some of you have heard this before. He took eight of the prophecies. And and he said, for one person just to by chance have fulfilled even just these eight prophecies, it would be uh, 10 to the 28th power, which is the number 10, right, with 28 more zeros behind it which is such an astronomical number that nobody can fit their head around there. So he uh, calculated out uh, uh, what it would be like. And he says, hey, that'd be like taking a silver dollar and putting uh, a magic marker and an X on one silver dollar and then taking enough silver dollars to cover the entire state of Texas two feet thick. And then you throw this one with the X in there and you take a big spatula and you mix it around so it's anywhere in there. And then you blindfold a guy and you drop him off in the middle of Texas and you tell him he can walk in any direction he wants to walk for as long as he wants to walk, change direction as often as you want, but at some point he will stop, bend down, and pick up a silver dollar. And the odds that he will pick up that silver dollar with the X on it is the same of, of Jesus or a person fulfilling just those eight prophecies by random chance. And yet there are people, critics of the Bible, who say, well, it's it's just a coincidence. Really? That takes a whole lot of faith to believe that, doesn't it? Only God can predict the future with such fine details and 100% accuracy. So what does all this mean for us today? Well, it's pretty simple. It is reasonable based on intelligent, verifiable evidence to accept the Bible as the divine word of God. And you know what that means? That means you can have confidence in what it says. You can rest assured that it will accomplish what it says it will do. It will make the wise simple. It will give hope to the hopeless. It will provide strength for the weary. It will give guidance to the lost and light for those who are in darkness. And yes, people will never get out of the Bible all they could until they accept it by faith, but it is a reasonable faith. There are reasons why Satan has tried to abolish the Word of God. He's tried to do it physically as the Bible's been banned and burned in many countries around the world. He's tried to do it intellectually by, by trying to discredit and disprove the Bible scientifically. He's tried to do it socially by making it unacceptable. Right now in America, right, he's trying to do it by making the Bible politically incorrect. But by each and every effort he makes, he will fail because God's word will stand. Because it is divine. It is from him. It is true. It is reliable. And it continues to change lives today. As King David put it in Psalm 119, 89, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And that gives us confidence. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you're not a God who has challenged us just to take a blind leap of faith. But as a God who has worked in history and therefore through verifiable accounts. God, we come to you in faith. But we are also thankful that you've proved yourself over and over. So, God, help us to walk with confidence in this life. Help us to come to your word with a great sense of assurance so that we can know it, accept it, and live by it. We pray this in your name. Amen.